What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Alex Cora doing his press conference in Florida today, as was Craig Breslow. Baseball is coming soon. It has not been the greatest offseason for the Red Sox thus far, but we'll see if spring training helps this team. Joining us now from SoxProspects.com, it is Ann Kundal. Ann has an article up right now, which is a fascinating read, how the Red Sox draft strategy has affected the club's pitching development. Ann, how are you, man? Thanks for coming back on. I'm good. Uh, it's nice to see, you know, some video of baseball getting started, even though we're sitting here in this dud of a snowstorm again, or not even a snowstorm, storm, we'll just call it. But uh means we're getting closer to opening day, and I think it's going to be nice to, you know, be able to talk a little more baseball uh, over the next couple of months heading into the season. I know this storm, man. I was getting all these notifications last night where it's like, hey, all these schools are getting canceled. You're seeing on your phone, like Channel 5's updating all the schools getting canceled. The ticker at the bottom, which you always used to look forward to as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I wake up this morning. I'm like, wait, hold on. Where's the snow? And then I'm like, oh, okay. It's not coming until a little bit later. And then it's like, oh, there's no snow. I know some people got hit, but in the North Shore where I'm at at Peabody, we got virtually nothing. You know what used to happen to me in high school? I went to Bishop Fenwick. And mm-hmm. always, I, I tell you that this literally probably happened like four or five times, but I felt like it always happened. Bishop Fian would come up and I'd be like, oh, shit, I thought we, I thought it was us. And now it ends up being Bishop Fian. Because our school, we didn't really make up snow days. You know, like the public school. Oh, yeah. Snow day. Yeah, because I went to public school. We had at first, yeah, we had to make up the snow days. So it was kind of like a catch 22. You know, you like the day off. But then at the end of the year, you, you ended up. I think there was one year we were in school till like the end of June because of so many snow days back when we actually got snow in the Northeast, which we don't anymore. Yeah. So 
But hey, man, I'm all for not having a shovel, nothing. Oh, yeah. I'm a bad driver to begin with. So (laughs) when the weather is bad, it makes it even more difficult for me. So I'm happy that we're in this situation. Okay, so let's turn to the Red Sox. Congrats. The article is awesome. So thank you. Yeah, the thing I really liked about this, Ann, is we talk about all the time. Oh, when's the last time the Red Sox developed a starting pitcher, right? We're like, was it Clay Buckholz? Was it Jeff to go as far back as... John Lester, and now they have Brian Bale, but this has been a conversation for the past couple of years. So you finally put some numbers on this, and this is what stuck out to me. So you mentioned that the Red Sox drafted and signed 77 pitchers from 12 through 2017, and they received 56% of the bonus money. Now, you could argue maybe they were burned by that because a lot of these pitchers didn't turn out to be great yeah, for them, right? The track record of the guys they gave the most money to in that time is not good. That's uh, yeah, like Trey Ball, about, Jay Groom, guys like that. Yeah, I guess the best one out of this group would be Hoke. Now, yeah. Michael Kopech, at least he was a tool to get Chris Sale. So I guess yeah. that did work. And so, like he was one of the big chips in that deal. But then you mentioned from 18 through 2023, the Sox drafted and signed 60 pitchers and they only made up 19% of the bonus money with, of course, the other 81% going to hitters. Now, the earliest the Red Sox you mentioned in the article have taken a pitcher since 2019 is 99th overall, a third rounder in 2022, Dalton Rogers. I believe you guys at Sox Prospects have him ranked 34th in the system mm-hmm. right now. Correct. So you have that 19% of the bonus money to the pitchers, the lowest in the sport during that stretch, and only two other teams are even south of 30%. So this is crazy. So first of all, how surprised are you when you dug up those numbers? And secondarily... What do you believe the rationale was behind this philosophy? So it was definitely a surprise. I mean, I knew, obviously, following the system as closely as I do, that they had not been drafting pitchers earlier. There's a running joke that you just find, you know, the best hit tool, middle infielder, high schooler from California, and that was going to be their first round pick every year. (laughs) And you kind of go from there uh, because they did do that for, I think, like four straight years. But I didn't know the extent of it. And that's kind of what prompted uh, this exercise. And yeah, when I really dug into it, the numbers were pretty drastic. And I, I think the, it, to me, it makes sense that this is an organizational philosophy and that you obviously you want to take the best player available, but with pitchers, there's inherent risk with them. Um, you know, that, that type of demographic, the burnout rate is higher. I think they, baseball America did a really good study, which I linked in the article uh, talking about the percentage chance that uh, a certain, like each position taken in the first round, second round, et cetera, would make the majors and then have like an impactful career and hitters are just, more likely to get up to the majors than pitchers are. That's just how it works. It makes sense. You know, injuries, other things, De- p- develop, developing pitchers is difficult. But I think there's kind of a sliding scale where you can take it too far to the other extreme. And that's kind of where I think the Red Sox lie is that, you know, when you look at the system and kind of what High and Bloom inherited after Dave Dombrowski and um, the couple seasons they had with all the trades and everything, there was not a lot in the cupboard. And when you're trying to rebuild, it's it's a safer bet to do it with bats. So I kind of get prioritizing the hitters. But at the same time, and I, I think uh, the Yankees, I know people don't want to hear that, but are probably a better one of the better examples of this is they're not a team that has given out huge bonuses to pitchers either. They've given out, you know, they usually give out one, one to two million dollar bonus every other year or so. And then they have a couple in that 500 to a million dollar range. And then result is they've turned out guys who can be valuable starters at the major league level, but also valuable trade chips. And I think that's the piece the Red Sox are missing is they took it too far. To, they took it so far to the extreme that you ended up with this situation you're in now where you have an extremely top heavy hit, uh, top heavy system with a bunch of very good hitting prospects. And then you're left with a bunch of relievers or 
you know, bulk relievers, maybe a fifth starter here and there. And ultimately, as we've seen with the Red Sox, that's not what they need right now. You know, they need those guys who can be that horse, that top of the rotation, or even like a number two, number three starter type. And they just don't have anyone like that in the system right now. And you're unlikely to get that or the odds are stacked against you when you're drafting guys and giving them, you know, small bonuses in the third, fourth, fifth, et cetera, around. Well, and that's the other component that you point out in the article is you had the number that only 23 pitchers had a war of three or more. This is Fangraph's version of war that were drafted that were drafted. Yeah, I took out international because the international market's weird. And I think the Red Sox have done a good job with that. You look at Brian Bayo, for example, the top two international prospects um, or the top two pitching prospects in our rankings were both international signings. And with pitchers, especially even if you look at like the top 100 bonuses given out, very rarely are pitchers getting a significant bonus there. Um, there's obviously an outlier here and there like Luis Morales, who is the only pitcher in the top 100 of Baseball America this year, who was an international signee originally got like three million dollars. But usually you're talking, you know, at most 500, 600 K for pitchers. So I just wanted to look at just the amateur draft because I think that's the area the Red Sox are str- have struggled the most in when it comes to developing pitching. I think what they've been doing internationally and what their player development staff has done with those international pitchers, I think has actually been pretty good. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. And the other thing I would say is it does make a lot of sense to draft all to your point. Like there is less error with the prospects that are position players than pitchers. Yeah. And there's a lot more injuries when it comes to pitchers as well. So you can get it in some capacity, but also when you go to the total extreme, when you're last in baseball since 2019, it makes it a little bit more difficult. And the other thing that I was thinking about with this going forward now is when you look at, now with Breslow in here, and you think about all the stuff they've done sort of with the pitching department, Andrew Bailey, who was very successful, Justin Willard, they brought in Kyle Bodie. So they've put a ton of emphasis on developing what they currently have in the system in terms of the pitchers. As you mentioned, it's not a great system when it comes to pitching, obviously, right now. But I wonder philosophically, because as you mentioned, they haven't drafted a pitcher in the first round since Tanner Houck. But And you look at the Cubs. So since 19, they've drafted three pitchers in the first round. Do you think now with Breslow in the fold and considering his whole thing was pitching, like the athletic had the great article about how all the guys stuff got better over since like Breslow went into their mind. Like this is not made up. Like he's really good at developing pitchers. But do you think that's something that changes the, uh, the philosophy changes with Breslow? Because also like with Heim Bloom, like he came in and it was, Hey, we don't have a lot of good position players left in the system, right? Like, yeah. okay, yeah, Tristan Casas, who's, I mean, the guy's an absolute stud. I love him. I predicted on the pod he's going to have a better season than Devers. It's neither here nor there. And, but overall, do you think, like, I'm not trying to defend time, but he just needed to get talent into the system. Do you think now with Breslow, since he has all these hitters in the system, position players, do you think now it changes? The philosophy changes, and there is more of an emphasis of drafting pitchers in the first round. Yeah, I, I think that's and that's I, I think I mentioned the piece. One of the things I'm most fascinated to see is because, as you said, the Cubs, it wasn't just that they took pitchers in the first round. They were giving big bonuses to pitchers second round, third round, fourth round. Even um, they took they had seven one million dollar plus pitcher bonuses in this six year stretch. They had another five between that next range, that next kind of range. I did 500 to a million. So you're talking 12 pitchers right there. The Red Sox in that same span had four. So you're talking almost two a year there for the six year window. So I, I definitely think that it's it's kind of a like a it's a player that the Red Sox will be looking to target more. I think the question is though that how much do you want to give up or is it a focus of you still want to just stay true to your board or do you reach for the pitcher? And I don't advocate that. I would still say if you think that mm. you have a, a better hitter than a pitcher at this slot, you should take the hitter. But at the same time, 
you got to get some balance at some point. And I wouldn't, you don't, you don't want to, you can't just, you got to change it at some point and get a little more mix, mix in the pitchers a little more. And I think that that's something that we're going to see more this year. I just, I can't imagine they're going to go given Craig Breslow's track record and not draft a pitcher in the top two rounds this year. Um, I would be very surprised. And I think, you know, if they can start doing that, they can kind of achieve that balance that I mentioned earlier, um, where you're still getting those, you know, top high end hitting prospects, but you're also mixing in those pitchers that have the chance with when you get them into this development staff, which I think is the other key to this discussion is what Breslow has been doing with the pitching development staff. It's been a complete overhaul. You know, they've brought in a new uh, MLB pitching coach. Kyle uh, Bodie, as you mentioned, uh, Justin Willard, new director of pitching. They basically revamped the entire AAA pitching apparatus from the pitching coach, bullpen coach, catchers even. They, you know, the Tyler Heineman trade, which happened recently. You're bringing in a really solid defensive ca- catcher to be your third catcher there, which is in stark contrast to what they had last year when they were running out like Ronaldo Hernandez, um, <laughs> who's not really a catcher at all. And so with that, it seems to me that this is a point of emphasis. And even the trades that Craig Breslow has made this, this offseason so far, like the... Um, the Alex Verdugo trade, you know, they got three pitchers in that trade and it's going to, it's going to take time. And I think that's the toughest thing to hear, but you got to be patient with this pitching development is not something that usually happens quickly, but if you can start getting that infrastructure in place, you know, you can take those two, give two, three bonuses between 500 and a million, or, you know, um, give one bonus a million to a million five, and you can get that guy up to the level that they're looking for. And that's, you know, it, it, you need both. You need to be able to, you need to be scouting. Well, you need to then be willing to devote the resources to it and take the risk, but then also you need the development staff. And I think that the Red Sox and I understand, you know, first you want to institute the development staff and then the next step is, you know, bringing that talent in and then molding them into the players they're looking to get. Yeah. And to your point that you made earlier about, Hey, you don't want to force the pick. I'm completely with you because if you do that, it's like, Oh wait, you're not going to draft Kyle Teal. If Kyle Teal falls. Exactly. Draft, it's a great, right? it's so a it's gr- great example. Cause yeah, there's no way no one predicted he was going to get to 14 and then, when he's there, you have to take that player, like the type of talent like that. But yeah, it's and it's, you know, playing the volume game with pitching is good. But at the end of the day, it's a lot harder, I think, to coach someone up or develop someone who is entering with a raw talent level on a lower on the scale. You know, it's easier to move the needle. Who's a guy who comes in as a 40. I'm just using as a 45 on the scouting scale to get them up to a 60 than it is to bring someone who was a 35 up to a 60. I mean, that's obvious, but I think that, um, you know, with pitchers, especially there's a reason these guys get paid a lot of money in the early rounds. It's because they have certain traits or characteristics that teams are looking for. And, you know, with Breslow, he talks a lot about raw stuff. That's guys who throw hard guys with really good, um, just yeah, stuff. The pitchers, the Red Sox have targeted recently in the draft, even the guys they're giving the 600 K to or you know, their bigger bonuses. Last year, a couple like they're more like, you know, pitchability guys, four pitches, fastballs in the low 90s. If you look at what the Cubs have done, Kate Orton, power arm, Jackson Ferris, power arm, Ryan Jensen, power arm. Um, Jordan Wicks is a little bit of an outlier, but he's that, you know, that really strong pitchability, basically MLB ready. I mean, we saw him in the big leagues last year, guy, um, college lefty. So that was that one was a little bit different, but they, they've prioritized a lot of their guys are stuff guys. And I think that's the another change we're going to see is kind of a more of an emphasis on looking for guys with that premium fastball and, you know, wipe out secondary pitch versus, you know, a four pitch guy with more of a command over stuff profile. Yeah. And with Breslow, obviously, as we mentioned, his background is pitching. And now that Heim left him all these position prospects, it would make sense that, hey, let's use uh, 
let's use high picks in the future on pitching because we don't have a lot of that in the system. And you mentioned what he's already done, the Verdugo trade. Richard Fitz, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have him, what, I think 11th? Definitely top 15 in the system, right? One of the yeah. guys they picked up yeah, in that the, I think he's third in our, if you just look at pitchers. Um, and it, he's an interesting one because he's someone when you talk to scouts to, most of them think that he's a bullpen arm. He's, he's got some warts. He gives up a lot of home runs. Um, does throw a lot of strikes, but third pitch is kind of iffy. Some platoonish concerns. But that's the type of profile there. Are, there is at least some stuff to work with there that I'm, I'm interested to see what Breslow can unlock with him. And I mentioned a couple other pitchers in there, um, guys like Giordani Manegro. And there's a few other ones um, who I'm very interested to see what the development staff does with because Manegro has two really good secondary pitches, but his fastball is just pretty dead. It's in the dead zone, even though it's in the you know mid 90s. And so he, he might be someone, you know, you get him in the lab and maybe he comes out throwing a sinker this spring or something like that. That's the kind of stuff I'm most interested to see. And I think that that's the biggest, you know, tangible impact we're going to be able to see pretty quickly with the pitchers already in the system is uh, what changes they make, you know, with Arsenal and, you know, maybe delivery tweaks, things like that to maximize kind of what they have and harness their ability. By the way, I wasn't planning on asking you about this, but since we're on the pitching thing, what do you make of Cutter Crawford? Because my buddy, and you know Lou Merloni well too, he was on here a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. He is so high on Cutter Crawford. And if you look at it by the numbers, his four-seam fastball last year is legitimately one of the most effective four-seam fastballs in Major League Baseball. So when you look at Crawford, and this is somebody that's obviously been in the system for a while now, we'll see like what Breslow and this group does with them in terms of, hey, do they change up the pitch mix or something along those lines? But what do you expect from Crawford? Is he a guy that you would want in the rotation? Because it feels like anywhere they put him last year, he he was pretty successful. Yeah, I, Crawford is a it's a, actually a really good development story. Someone I think he was a 17th round pick out of Florida Gulf Coast back in 2017. Um, and he's obviously, you know, turned into last year. He was arguably, I would say what him or Pavetta was probably their best pitcher last year. Just start looking yeah, about guys would, who started. Yeah, I would give the nod to Pavetta because after he basically found that, I know he doesn't like to call it a sweeper or something, <laughs> sweep, but after yeah. He, yeah, after he adjusted, after he used that pitch, he was legitimately one of the best pitchers in baseball. Like, it, that's not even like hyperbolic. He was unbelievable for the rest of the season after that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that it, the Crawford's biggest issue is is durability to me. Um, you saw last year, I think he threw 130 innings. And if you look at yeah. his like through the order splits, the, the third time and through the order, you know, when you get in that fifth, sixth inning, it gets rough. And I think that's partially because, you know, you look, it's a pretty effortful delivery. And when you're throwing that many fastballs up in the zone, like that's a ta- it's a taxing type of arsenal, basically. And I think that if they can find a way for him to get kind of easy outs early in the bats, so he's not, you know, having and the strikeouts are good. Obviously, he had a good K rate last year. I think it was like 66 percentile. Um, with a strikeout percentage last year, he throws a ton of strikes, which is good. But if he can get more whiffs and kind of either get more whiffs, so just quicker at bats, so he can go into that fifth, sixth, sixth inning on a lower pitch count, you know, weak ground balls, things like that. I think that's something that could really help, um, help him stay as a starter. But I, I think you have to give him a, a chance in the rotation. I, I think they've made that pretty clear that he's going to be, because I think, as you said, with that type of fastball, that that's what every team is looking for in a pitcher these days. Um, and now it's just the thing. It'll be interesting to see if they can work with him to kind of find that a secondary pitch to go along with his fastball and his cutter um, to give him, you know, another weapon to, to get guys out, especially uh, guys of the opposite handedness. Because if you look at like his, uh, you look at his splits by pitch type last year, fastball was extremely effective 164 opponent batting average, 327 opponent slugging. 
secondary pitches cutter 287 426 curveball 346 42 um you know the split finger actually was pretty effective he only threw it he didn't throw it very much and the sweeper and the slider were pretty effective so i wonder if we're going to see him kind of like focusing more on the pitches that were more effective and kind of cut down his arsenal a little bit and if that can help him you know stay obviously he needs to stay healthy but if that can help him you know be a more successful starter and work deeper into games yeah it's kind of the opposite of like bayo because bayo he it feels like he could he could pitch like 13 innings in a day because it doesn't feel like it's as taxing with him and Crawford. Yeah, you're right. There is a lot of high effort stuff with him. I hope that we see some adjustments with Bayo too. And hopefully this new staff will help him because one of the issues he had last year was the fastball. Like he yeah. just, he had got a lot drilled. of trouble with it. Yeah. It got absolutely crushed. And I get it. It's his first league. It's first year being like a full-time starter. I still don't understand why he wasn't up to begin the season, but we'll see what he does because obviously he's got a, ton of talent and it just like I, I was looking at it now so 47th of 56 starters in terms of his um what was it the the FIP was 47th of 56 yeah. starters off the fastball right yeah well yeah. no just in general oh, just in general oh, okay yeah, yeah. yeah but here's like he has good stuff like his ground ball rate was third launch angle was fourth we know he gets a ton of ground balls the mm-hmm. swinging strike rate was pretty low, and the four-seamer that I mentioned. So lef- lefties crushed him. 313, 883 OPS, and if you look at the expected numbers, they're bad too. And the same thing with the two-seamer. So do you think it's like, is it just one of these things where he needs to change up his pitch mix against lefties? Because it felt like it, like neither one of the fastballs was effective against lefties. And this is like, I'm not killing the guy. He's really good as a young pro, like he's a young pitcher and I think he's going to get better. But what do you think is going to change with uh, Bayo entering basically his second year as like a full-time starter, so to speak? I I think that they're going to, I feel like it's going to be, they need to get rid of him throwing fastballs up in the zone or, you know, in, Basically, there's actually in the middle of the zone, which I guess you could argue is a command issue. Um, you know, it, when he missed location with his fastball, it just got crushed. And that's something that, you know, if he can throw sinkers down, we've seen him be effective. If you can get that fastball above the letters or, you know, at that kind of that high point where it's above the hands, it can be effective there also. But, you know, when you have the fastball like he does that. It doesn't really have his four seam. It's like below average ride. Um, velocity is obviously good. It's like a lower spin rate. It's not, it's tough. There's a lot, even though you're throwing 95, 96 miles an hour, there's not a lot of margin for error with that pitch against major league hitters. And yeah, I, I think that what we're going to see is probably more of a reliance on the sinker, or maybe they're going to have find some tweak with the fastball to get it effective. And, you know, maybe he can talk to Cutter Crawford and learn how to throw that fastball because Brian Bay with Cutter, <laughs> if you if you could get Brian Bay with Cutter Crawford's fastball you're probably talking about one of the better pitchers in the American League so that is uh yeah it's going to be interesting to see kind of what changes he makes and if they do some kind of tuning with how his arsenal breaks down um you know go away from the four seam maybe more sinkers something like that yeah and even though like that the four seamer got hit really really hard against hard. him last year the one thing I'll say is like I give him a ton of credit like he didn't have a ton of bad starts, right? Like he just he finds no, that, a way to that he, one Ranger start skewed his entire season numbers. Like yeah, when you shouldn't have even been pitching. Um, right, he finds a way though. He finds a way to get out of a ton of jams, and that's because he gets a lot of ground ball. So I'm very optimistic. I just found it like as you watch down the stretch of the season and you see the numbers compile up over the length of the season, you're like, okay, this is this is becoming a real issue. Like let's see yeah. how they 
sort of figure out a way for him to adjust that. All right. So one of the other things you mentioned in the article is giving up a hitting prospect for a pitcher. And you referenced the Diamondbacks trade when they picked up Zach Gallen, who became really important for their World Series run. And they traded what? That was for Jazz Chisholm, who went yep. to the Marlins, of course. Yeah. So now that they have this surplus of position players, do you think that this is something that Craig Breslow tries to do? He even referenced it like when he was introduced, that they have a lot of position He talked about prospects. it today, too. Yeah. OK, so he talked about it at his yeah. press conference again. I think about like, and I'm not saying he's going to get you a great return, but What's Nick York's future with the organization? I feel like he's going to be blocked all over the place. So I feel like if it's me, I may want to trade him sooner rather than later because it feels like eventually he could lose his value to the point where teams are like, uh, yeah, we know you're you're never going to play him at the major league level. You kind of got to trade him. So to me, that'd be a guy that I'd be looking to move in the near future. Yeah, I mean, and that that's the hard thing, though, is that teams, um, I think to, every team has a different value of a player. And when you look, you know, Got to get those the type of pitcher thereafter, you probably have to give up someone better than York. And I don't think they're in a position where they want to do that. Um, right. I think Craig Breslow has kind of telegraphed it where he said that, you know, we will strike when we're in a position where we think we're in our competition window. And I think this year is kind of it seems like they're treating it more as a bridge year to get those guys up for 2025 and beyond. And I think that when we would see a move like that is more likely to be after this season. Um, and that's, you know, by the end of the season, maybe Nick York goes out and shows his, the, his hit tools back like it was in what, two years in 2021 when he was, you know, dominating low A and high A and was one of the best hitters in all of baseball and minor league baseball. Um, maybe Miguel Blaise comes in and regains his prospects after a pretty much lost year due to injury. You know, maybe Yoel Cespedes gets to the point that he turns into what a lot of people think he could be, you know, a top five prospect in the system by the end of the season because of how talent, how good he was in the DSL last year. They have a lot of high upside or, you know, potential upside with these hitting prospects. And I think that by the time we get to, you know, next year, we'll have a better feel for who's, you know, likely a member of the Red Sox going forward or who's more likely to be a trade ship. And that's when I think we'll start to see those type of moves. Um, I just think that, you know, right now they're kind of in a they're It's more of it as I was talking about earlier, just an infrastructure building phase where they're, you know, they're changing everything with the pitching development, how they want to do it. They're instituting all the processes, bringing in the new personnel that they want to get that going forward. Hitting development has been good. You know, as you talked about, Tristan Costas came through the system, Roman Anthony, Marcelo Meyer. That area is working fine. And let's get those guys in and hopefully they'll increase their value to the point where we can get, you know, the type of pitching prospects we want to get into the system um, in a future deal when we're close to a competition window. Well, yeah, and it's like, too, if you're an opposing team and you're giving up one of your best pitching prospects, you don't want Nick York, right? Like no. you're saying, you're like, hey, how about the Roman Anthony guy? How about the Marcelo Meyer guy? And if you're Breslow, that's like, no, we're not yeah. doing that. So it's really like you don't have an avenue to make a trade like that at this at this point in time. And you really can't do like the the pitching prospect for a current starter because you don't have the pitching prospect to trade. Well, that's exactly what you what you mentioned when you when you brought up Kopech. I was thinking I was like, you can't make that trade right now because you don't have a you don't have a pitcher to give up like Kopech. And it's why, you know, when you talk about guys like Corbin Burns, um, Dylan Cease, White Sox want Brian Bayo in that trade. What's there's no point in that. You know, that's just a right. zero sum game right there. And I think that's the issue you're running into is if and I'm I'm sure they have asked about all these top, you know, pitchers that have supposedly been on the trade market, the Seattle guys, guys like that. The cost for those guys is extortionate. And you're not going to give up Brian Bayo in a trade like that. Okay. Are you going to give up Tristan Casas? No. So it's just your options get limited because, you know, your system is these top hitting guys. And then 
guys who are nice players, but you're not necessarily someone who's going to anchor a trade like that. And I think the goal is, you know, after the season, they'll be in a position where they have enough of those guys and they can kind of figure out who is surplus and go down that route because it's not, it doesn't even have to be like for, you know, the Zach, the Zach Allen trade is like the 99th percentile outcome. You know, that's the other one I mentioned there was Kyle Manzardo for Aaron Savali, which the Rays did at the deadline last year. First baseman for them blocked. You know, he was a solid prospect back end top 100 guy. You got Aaron Savali, who I think a lot of people wanted the Red Sox to get last year at the trade deadline. I think you yeah. talked about it on your um, on the, your show uh, before. And, you know, even a deal like that is just not something they've done. And I think that's kind of taking it back to the the draft, um, the lack of drafting of pitchers. You know, I, th- I do think that strategy can work. And there are teams that have been able to pull it off. Like you just have to augment it via either trades or free agent signings. And you can't not do all three of them. And that's unfortunately what the Red Sox have been doing for the last couple of years is they're not going out and spending money on pitchers ever since David Price. They haven't given out, you know, they're not giving out long term contracts to pitchers. Um, and then they're not making these trades. And so when you're not doing that, those two things, and you're not drafting them and developing guys who you're giving, you know, significant resources to, you end up in a situation where you are today where the Red Sox have some pitchers I like. They have Brian Bayo, who I think, you know, could be a solid number two starter, maybe a number three. Other than that, you know, Pavetta's back end, maybe he's a, th- actually, Pavetta could be a three now. Who knows? Like he was that good at the end of last season. But the other guys you're talking about, Tanner Howe, Garrett Whitlock, Josh Winkowski, who are all competing for that fifth starter. That's what they are that. They're back end starters. And that's, you know, that's how you kind of end up with a bunch of guys like that is you're not willing to invest heavily in free agency. You're not making these trades, these hitter for pitcher trades or, you know, multiple players um, aggregating into one high end pitcher like the Chris Sale trade. And then you're not drafting them. You know, you kind of run into the situation where you are today. Bet the NBA with a no-sweat same-game parlay from FanDuel every Thursday with TNT Thursdays. It doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel or already have an account. You'll get bonus bets back if your same-game parlay doesn't win on any NBA on TNT game. NBA same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance to score a bigger payday. And I'm looking at this final game before the All-Star break, the Grizzlies and the Bucks. I like Giannis for 25 points. Damian Lillard for four made threes, Luke Kennard three made threes, and the Bucks on the money line. However you want to play, just head on over to FanDuel.com Pike to bet the NBA with a no-sweat same-game parlay with TNT Thursdays. That's FanDuel.com Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21-plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com RG. Minimum three-leg parlay required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets, which expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. All right, yeah, so the reason I mentioned Savali was just because he was one of the only guys that matched up sort of what Haim was saying at the deadline where he said, hey, we want somebody but with control. So they weren't going yeah. for any rentals. That's Because he's not like a great pitcher, but it made sense. Yeah. Like if you want to get some innings, okay, that made sense to me. But Yeah, so you mentioned like the fact that, okay, well, if you're not drafting these guys in the first round and you don't have a lot in the system, well, you have to do something externally, right? Like we talked about how these trades aren't matching up. And if you look at it, so since 2019, so the Sox, of course, they won that World Series in 2018, which feels like so long ago at this point, like the the team is completely different. I know a lot of teams look different, but it's crazy that you think back, it was 2018. But since that point, they're 26 in innings from their starters, okay? And then if even the 2021 season, when they actually made a run all the way to 
the they ended up losing to the Astros in the ALCS, but they did make it pretty far that season. Even that year, they were only 18th in innings out of their starters, right? But all it took was, hey, if you're 18th, you got a good enough offense, you can get in and let's see what happens when we get into the postseason. But if you look through what they did, like these years, tw- I, I take out 2020, right? Because that's a lot. Yeah, season. I mean, you, you can't read right. much into that year. So 2021, they brought in Garrett Richards. Remember, remember when he was too cold one game? Although, remember, he he briefly found it as a reliever. He's like, yeah. he was a great reliever for like a couple of a couple of months. I'm like, whoa, Garrett Richards. Martin Didn't he Perez. Get like, wasn't he someone who, when they did the sticky stuff uh, change to? Oh, yeah. They, he massively lost like spin rate and all that stuff. Yeah, he was he he was right up there with the spin rate leaders. Martin Perez, who had a good season two years ago, was not good for the Red Sox, but you had Nate still there, Erod was still here, Hauk Pavetta and Sale was hurt in 2021. He eventually came back and he for a guy that was working with two pitches, he was actually pretty respectable. And I know he didn't pitch well in that game against Tampa Bay in the postseason. He was pretty good against Houston until he faced Alvarez for the third time, which was obviously an issue. 2022, they brought in Waka. Rich Hill, Chris Sale barely pitches that year, of course, because he got injured again. Remember, he had the mangled hand after Mm -hmm. he came back. He got hit against the Yankees. And so then in 2023, Kluber was a disaster, has recently retired. Paxson only pitched 96 innings. He was actually good when he pitched, but only 96 innings. So the reason I bring all this up is it felt like what they were doing is they were hoping Whitlock could be a starter. They were looking at Chris Sale, and they were almost depending on Chris Sale. Like, Chris Sale is going to be good for us, which... We found out like he's always been a health risk ever since really going back to 2018, the year they won a World Series. Like he was unbelievable. He's probably on pace to win the Cy Young and then he gets shut down for a while. He comes back. He wasn't great in the postseason. So it feels like to me, like one of the biggest issues they had during this recent stretch after they won the World Series is, well, if you're going to be in a position where you don't have prospects in the organization, you need to make a trade or maybe the more realistic thing is to sign starters. So I feel like that's where, if you're going to say, hey, we're not drafting top-tier guys, you got to do it another way. And I feel like that's what's hurt the Red Sox. And these numbers with the starters would sort of indicate that. Well, especially since you just listed, and I think the longest deal, and if you include this offseason, they've given to a pitcher in that time, is other than an extension for Whitlock, is two years. Um, you know, with Giolito, and I think that's the only one, right? Weren't the rest yeah. of those all one-year deals? Yeah, so, so maybe they 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 feel like they were just burned by price and sale, and they were saying like this was what they were ownership was saying. Heim, no more long term contracts. Not that Heim yeah. signed those, but I'm just saying like maybe that's was sort of well, an edict and G- from ownership. Giolito's deal isn't even a two year deal; it's a one year deal with a team, basically a player option for the second year. So yeah, I, I I do wonder if that you know even taking it back to the draft thing too. You know, we listed those draft the pitchers they took and spent a lot of resources on who didn't pan out. You go to free agency, you know, your big free agent signing is David Price. And that obviously you had to, you basically used him or you used Mookie Betts to trade him partially. Um, that that has to sting. You know, if your ownership, you see that and you're wondering, you know, why are we devoting resources to this side when the return on hitters is just, it is safer. Um, but yeah, it I, I think it has to change. I think it will change, but it's just... I can understand the frustration of this offseason, especially when you have someone like Jordan Montgomery out there who seems to fit what they need really well. And they're still, you know, running back basically the same team as last year with or the same pitching staff as last year, just with Giolito swapped out for um, Chris Sale. And I understand like looking at a lot of the pitchers who assigned the top guys are still out there, but those secondary pieces 
are you are we hundred percent sure certain a guy like Seth Lugo is going to be that much better than you know what Tanner Howe could give you or you know Garrett Whitlock, whoever you want to insert at that fifth starter, or even Cutter Crawford as the fourth starter. I'm not, but I think you know there were only a couple a handful of pitchers who you could say were make them demonstrably better this season. I think they're frankly still out there, but Montgomery's the biggest one. So I can understand wanting to kind of save up for someone, especially when you look forward to next year's free agent class pitching wise is a lot better. But still, it's it's something as something's got to give at some point. And I think that it's going to be fascinating watching how Craig Breslow handles this season, whether it's, you know, with in-season moves to acquire pitchers via trade um, the draft. You know, there's going to be a lot of checkpoints along the way where we're going to start to see if these changes come into motion. And I, I think that that's the part that people you got to be focused on for um, this season is both, you know, seeing who of the homegrown pitchers in the starting rotation kind of establishes themselves as the guys you want to build around going forward, but then also how they are, how they are augmenting and kind of bringing in new talent for that position, um, both this off this season and then going forward into the off season next year. Yeah. And I think what hurts Breslow here is as we were talking about earlier, he doesn't really have the pieces to facilitate a trade with one of the Mariners guys or really no. one of the Marlins guys. And then you have Jordan Montgomery, who's living in Boston, where it's like, hey, this guy, it feels like the perfect fit. And they're probably worried about the length of the contract, right? Is he looking for five, six years? If that's the case, maybe that's the issue that the Red Sox have, even though, I mean, if you're saying you're going to spend money or Fenway Sports Group, you would think you're going to get a couple really good years out of that contract. So we'll see, like, if they come back to the table on that one. But we know how. No, I was just going to say, that's the hard thing is he's still unsigned. So, I mean, it could change, but I think I can... With Mon- Montgomery, such an interesting case because I think there was a report recently that he wants the Carlos Rodon contract. If he wants the Carlos Rodon contract, I frankly don't blame them for not giving that. Um, you know, he's a he's a good pitcher. He's a very good pitcher, but he's not an ace. He's not even really a number two. He's ideally someone who's your you know your second best pitcher. You're kind of a two three type, and he wants he's looking for ace money. So I can see the disconnect there. But if yeah, if it gets down into like three four year contract. I think you have to. I would hope they would consider it, but we'll see. I mean, it's it's tough to say with Scott yeah, Boris. You never know. Rodon is six for one sixty two. Yeah, I. That's that's a big contract. He signed through his thirty five year old season. So yeah, it, the other interesting part is like Boris has Snell too, right? So he's yeah. like contr- he's controlling this whole thing. I mean, so if you look, if you look at the free agents left, it's those two plus Bellinger and Chapman are all the top guys, and they're all Boris guys, I yeah. believe. I'm not one hundred percent sure on Chapman, but I, I think he is. So it's like. I know there's been a lot of talk about this offseason. There's still a lot of big players left on the board. Well, it's really only one person's big players. So it's going to be, I mean, spring, spring training starts next week. So it's going to be interesting to see if those guys end up signing anywhere soon or if this drags out kind of like J.D. Martinez did and a few others have over the last couple of years into the into the training or in spring training. Oh, that just reminded me. That was such a badass move by Dombrowski. He's like, to, he was just basically playing a game of chicken with Boris. He's like, no, you don't have anywhere else to go. He's the perfect fit for us. You know, he's the perfect fit. Eventually, he's going to come here and it worked. Uh, JD was, he was so, he, I mean, he was great as a Red Incredible Sox. Incredible. Those first couple of years. Those first oh few my. years, though. Yeah. Yeah. 2018, well, there was like an argument. Remember, we having these arguments locally, like, who's the MVP? Is it really Mookie or should it be JD? Like, look at Mookie's numbers last year. JD fit the hole where he plugged like the David Ortiz spot in the lineup. I mean, he was, that guy is an incredible hitter. I mean, hey, he's still unsigned, I believe, right? I mean, yeah. he hasn't signed yeah, with anybody still. Nope. He's one of the few big, bats left and unfortunately though i mean i, I don't hit they don't have a dh spot so that's not going to happen here and we right. saw yeah. with solaire off the board i think the lineup is pretty much what it is for now um 
but yeah, I mean, it's in that JD Martinez trade does. I mean, it's not trade signing though. It does show, you know, FSG if with under the right with the right person in charge can be convinced to commit money um, to the right. Red Sox. It's just when you look at that team and where they were in the moment, I think the FSG and looked at it, you know, that they were in a contention window right then. They obviously ended up, we know how that season ended. Um, and that's when you strike for a move like that. And that's the thing I think Craig Breslow keeps emphasizing in his press conference, he even talked about it again today is talks about there will be a time when we will be back to being, you know, one of the big spenders in the sport. It's just the time is not right now. And I can understand if you're if you're if you're saying that, you know, the Red Sox, do you want to stay under you have a certain budget for this year? If you're Craig Breslow, would you rather, you know, push for a big signing now when you think your team's more in kind of a transition? Or would you wait until next offseason when you believe that, you know, if you have conviction that Roman Anthony, Marcelo Meyer, Marcelo Meyer, Meyer and Kyle Teal are going to be, you know, anchors of your lineup who are going to be ready next season wouldn't it make more sense to kind of line up any big spending and free agency with them i think that's the case against it I'm not saying i agree i just think that that's i can see understand that line of thinking yeah and i don't envy the position that breslow's in well i guess i do because he's making a shit ton of money to run a baseball team so i guess i envy him <laughs> i guess i guess in some spot i like i i, I it would be a pretty nice gig but uh the point being is just like well your owner comes out, or one of your owners, and Tom Warner comes out and he talks about full throttle. So the fan base is going nuts. They think you're going to do all these things, and it's like, wait, hold on. Like, are these things we are these moves sh- we should be making? Like, I yeah. I would have loved them to add a starting pitcher. I would have liked Teoscar Hernandez or Soler, but I look at Soler. He got a three year contract from the Giants. Like, I know he hit 36. He would have been the perfect fit on like a perfect one or fit. two year. He would have hit. He also yeah. would have hit like 55 home runs here. Yeah, he would have been a little bit, but it would have been I could see 40 plus easily here at Fenway with that swing, like a fly ball approach, left feet pull happy. Yeah. And like, think about it when he when uh, like the uh, what was it two years ago? The World Series with run that he had with the Braves. I mean, this this guy hits bombs, so he'd have been awesome. But maybe they're like, we don't want to give him the third year. Maybe that's what it was, because it took him a while to get. And he goes to the Giants like he's not going to hit a lot of home runs there. You know what I mean? Like. I'm sure he'd rather be here rather than there. So it did it like that's one thing that did upset me about the offseason is that outside of Tyler O'Neill, who we don't even know how healthy that guy's going to be. I know he's been in the gym and we can clearly tell that, but we don't know how healthy he's going to be. Right. I mean, yeah. going back to 2021 when he had the big year past couple of years, he's been dealing with a lot of injuries. So you go back to the press conference today and these guys are off the board. So Cora is saying that he thinks that if Rafaela makes the team, he doesn't think if Rafaela makes the team, he's playing center. We know that he's an incredible athlete out there, but you look at it last year, tiny sample size, 89 plate appearances. The walk rate is really low, 5.3%. That was 5.1% in AAA. And he swung at 41.6% of pitches out of the zone. 451st of the 493 hitters with at least 80 plate appearances. And I know that is a very tiny sample size, but the reason I bring this up is this is sort of the profile, right, with Raffaella. So, like, I wonder, does he have enough plate discipline now to be your every start, everyday starter in center field to start the 2024 season? Or do you think, Ann, that he has to start in AAA? So it's an interesting question because... It, what you said about the chase rate, that's that's who he's been his entire career. It was frankly worse heading into last year. He cut it down to 40% in the minors last year than I think at the MLB level, as you said, it was like 39% around there. So cut it down from 40 to 39%, not ideal when you, you know the target number you're looking for is like under 30%, preferably closer to 25-ish. Um, but 
I think that if you have conviction, his glove is, as you said, no doubt, he's a potential gold glove center fielder, in my opinion. If you decide that you just think this is who he is, you know, that more time in the minors isn't going to help his approach develop, it's not going to help with the swing decisions, then maybe the defensive boost he would give over someone like Duran in center field is worth it. Um, and if and it, the interesting thing to me is I know they've been linked with they were linked with Michael Taylor a couple months back. It's like similar profile there. You know, you're talking about a low average, low OBP, great defender in center field. If you're going to do that and you you think Rafaela kind of is what he is at the plate, then you might as well just run him out there. And then you then it frees up Duran to play left field where he probably fits a little better at this point. And the outfield kind of makes more sense in that regard, and it could help the pitchers out too. But I, I still think that I personally would prefer to see him start in the minors. I just think that he has shown improvement. I it's it's been a been a, it's a work in progress and I've seen him putting the work in which I like you know before games he's they're doing things where they're throwing BP where it's like in the dirt and he's just not swinging during BP it was one of the most unique things I've ever seen where you know BP is usually just grooving pitches you know working on hitting it to certain fields his are he's getting them all over the place because he has to learn not to swing at them and mm-hmm. I think that that's something that he did show some slight improvement you know jumping from double A AA to triple A um you know about over 200 plate appearances each he went from 3.58 pitches per plate appearance to 3.7. Got up to the majors. He got it up to 3.98. So, you know, we're seeing some incremental progress, seeing more pitches per at bat. Um, as I said, the chase rate, you know, it stayed relatively static, which is actually encouraging because usually you you see that jump about, you know, 5%-ish when they go from AAA to the majors. So the fact that it stayed around the same is, you know, that's a good sign. I think that there's enough there that I would prefer to keep him down in the minors, at least to start the year and hope that you know those changes can be built upon and because if he does if he can do that that's the type of talent you know that every org is after your potential for a gold glove center fielder who has content who can you know hit the ball hard when he does make contact solidly when he barrels it up and he's got speed you know that's a really dynamic player who i think would bring another dimension to this offense that they don't they have it but he would extend it beyond you know you're obviously counting on trevor story to bounce back if Duran's and if he's replacing Duran or both of them are in the lineup, like those three, you're adding a speed dynamic that the Red Sox really haven't had for a while. And, you know, you're talking about three, four guys in the lineup who are stolen base threats. And with the new emphasis on that and the way baseball's played, as we saw last season, I think you need to prioritize having as many athletes as possible in the lineup. You know, the game has kind of changed where it's you want athletes or guys who hit a ton of home runs. And I don't know, you know, that in-between player is the one who seems like they're kind of getting phased out a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned the link to a guy like Michael A. Taylor in the past. And you think about it from the Red Sox perspective, they could use a right-handed bat. Raphael is a right-handed bat. You wonder, like, is Duvall back in the picture here or something along those lines? Chris Cotillo had the reporting on Tuesday that they were going to be looking for another outfielder. You would assume that's somebody from the right side. And then the Raphael question, it's... Sort of, well, hey, he helps our defense so much, even though we don't think he's completely ready, but we don't think he's going to be that much better in terms of his approach. So do we do we just bring him up because he's going to help our club so much defensively? So I do think it's there. It's a tough decision that they're going to have to make. Now, he could just come into spring training, hit the shit out of the ball. His plate discipline has improved dramatically from where it was last year. I'm saying, I mean, this is all hypothetical. And then they, it makes their decision easier, but it's probably going to be a more difficult decision it's because this team is, yeah yeah this team is just so left-handed heavy i mean and yoshida is now going to be cora said today he's basically going to be the dh well, which that's the inter- has to be 
I agree with he does kind of have to be. Um, but that's the interesting thing is if he's more or less the full time DH, unless you're planning on start. I mean, I guess your outfield then is going to be Tyler O'Neill, Jaron Duran, and Willier Brayu. It's a lot of pressure on a guy like Willier Bray, who I really yeah. like. But you know, you're counting on Duran to stay healthy, which the way he plays is not a guarantee. You know, he's a very super talented, super exciting player to watch. But we've seen it. You know. That that play style is can get a little reckless. You can lead to injuries, um, kind of fluky things. Willier Brayu, are we sure? You know, he was excellent in his short time in the majors last year. Are we sure he can be an everyday right fielder? I'm not yet. I, I think you know a role better suited for him would be somewhere you know more like 400 plate appearances, 425, where you're limiting his exposure to good lefties and uh, excuse me, uh, get, yeah, to good lefties. And then it comes back to, well, you probably do need another right-handed outfielder. Oh, wait, I guess, Rafael, it does make some sense if you're not going to add yeah. anyone externally. So it's, I, I do wonder if they're just, it's going to be like, hey, how does Rafael look in camp? Two weeks in, it's the same, you know, get Adam Duvall, Tommy Pham, insert right-handed hitting outfielders agent on the phone, um, kind of wait it out and see which one of those, if one of those guys just happens to want to be taking, you know, a smaller short-term deal at lower money. Yeah, and then with Yoshida, it's interesting because the bat to ball skills we knew were elite, right? So his batting average last year, he was 13th in Major League Baseball, 289. The strikeout rate was awesome, 14%, which was 10. The thing that jumped out to me is he was advertised as this guy that he walks a ton, right? That's what we heard when he was coming over from Japan. He had a 5.9% walk rate, which was 110th out of 133 qualifiers. So then you look at the power numbers, the slugging percentage, 445, which is 64. The isolated power, not great. We know he hits the ball into the ground a lot. So the ground ball rate was the fifth highest. The launch angle was 130th out of 133 qualifiers, which shouldn't be surprising. So I felt like last year at times, like he swung at pitches that maybe he wasn't swinging at in Japan because, I mean, the bat to ball skills, as we said, are great. But sometimes you're hitting the ball and it's not going very far. It's going on the ground because it's just like, oh, we know you can get to that pitch. But what are you actually doing with that pitch? So. What do you expect from him in year two? I know it's obviously a major adjustment coming over to the major leagues. He did the World Baseball Classic as well. So do you expect him to hit for more power and maybe walk a little bit more this season? Or are you worried about Yoshida? No, I I, I feel pretty good about a bounce back from him. And, and I think one of the biggest things that kind of gets, you mentioned it briefly there, is last season was pretty disrupted where he came over from Japan and then he had to go to the World Baseball Classic basically immediately started ramping up you know a month sooner than usual for real games and the um MLB season is just much longer than the Japanese league season or the um than the season that he was used to and as a result you know i think if you look at if you looked at his splits it's it's around i want to say around like mid July he kind of hits a wall and the rest of the season he really struggles and his numbers take a massive nosedive yeah. and i think that I think it was Craig Breslow. It might have been. I was either Alex Cora or Craig Breslow today talked about that they're they're expecting him to have a better feel for the schedule over here, like having to to play, manage himself for 162 games. Not you know because if, if you look at his Japanese league stats, uh, the most games he played in a single season was 143. So yeah, and that was only that was two years. So since since 2020, the most games he played in a season was 121. So that's 40 less than an MLB regular season. So I think that that's something that um, he'll have a better feel for how the kind of the rigors that you face playing um, in the major leagues with the 162 game schedule. And also, I think that having a normal spring training will be really helpful. You know, he won't have to be ramped up by this time, basically, you know, a, a week from now to go play in real games, competitive games that matter. 
because obviously we know how we know how important the WBC is um, to Japanese baseball culture. Now he's going to have a normal spring training. He'll get to ramp up slowly, and I think that he'll be ever be able to better pace himself. And so I, I think he's someone who, and I think the projections came out recently. I want to say it was like Zips or something, where they had they you know, they were very bullish on Yoshida for this season. Um, there was the same one that I think had cost us as a higher WRC plus than Rafaela, which I'm sure you enjoy, or than uh, than Deverge, which I'm sure you enjoyed I agree. Too. I agree. <laughs> I like but, the approach more. I, I was yeah. very upset with Rafi last year. Not personally. I don't really know him personally, right? Yeah. But I mean, like, dude, it, just be decent on defense. You don't have to you don't have to be Nolan Arenado. Just so don't I, butcher all these routine ground balls. I don't get it because he'll make this play where you're like, whoa, like that's the difference between him and Yoshida. Like, by the way, Yoshida, another thing we should factor in, he's not gonna be playing in the field. So he's definitely gonna be less fatigued after he adjusted yeah. from last year too. He's not gonna be playing in the field, but Rafi, he just drives me nuts. It's like, dude, why can't you make the simple play? I, it's it's so annoying at times. I'm like, he's such a great player, but that that stuff just pisses me. Off. And now he's one. He has to be one of the leaders of the team based on the contract, and now based on his age, like he's not a young player anymore. Like the fact that he took a step backwards last year. And I know he's dealing with injuries at certain times, but it feels like he's always sort of dealing with something. I hope that he comes into spring training in better shape, and I hope that he's better defensively. Like, if he's just an average defensive player, I mean, he could easily be an MVP candidate with the offensive numbers that he puts up. So I was disappointed the way that he performed last year after getting the big contract. I think, though, that one thing with his defense, and I think we might have talked about it at the time, is I do wonder how much having the revolving door at shortstop impacted him last year. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, we saw at the end of the season, Trevor Story was basically the best one of the the best defensive shortstop in in the sport i think from uh from when he returned until the end of the season or top five at least and i think having that continuity with someone to his left that he knows is has range like trevor yeah. story outs above average i think it was uh he's in like the 85th percentile or something for range factor so he's going to be able to i think having knowing that story is there and knowing that he doesn't have to go as far to his left um, is going to help because if you notice, I, I feel like a lot of Devers' errors were on plays where he would range his left and you just, just airmail the throw or just you know something yeah. would happen there. And now with story, had, him and Kike had that issue where he didn't yeah. know like, hey, should I come over? Should I not come over? And now you know, and uh, going back to and I, I do put stock into this. They have a full spring training together to work on that stuff together. You know, Trevor Story has not really gone through a normal spring training with the Red Sox. I, it's kind of weird to say, but. That's just the way, you know, signing late with COVID and injuries. And now, obviously, like with injuries, he's missed a lot of time. Him and Devers, you know, they're going to get that time. He's going to know how far over he's going to have to go to pick up story and vice versa. And I think that having that having that familiarity and uh, that kind of stability at shortstop is going to really help Devers defensively. Okay, well, here's the big thing, Ian, before we let you go, because that could change a lot for the Red Sox. Trevor Story, and maybe you're right. Maybe with Trevor Story in the fold, Rafi will be a better defensive player. But we talked about the lack of right-handed power in this lineup right now. So Trevor's story, like he's not too far removed from being a really good player. If you look at between 2017 and 2021, 55 Mm -hmm. defensive runs saved among shortstops. That was the fourth most. Like that is, he is, to your point, that guy is an incredible athlete, super athletic. And by the way, like his first year here, he was their best hitter with runners in scoring position. I'm not trying to say like this justifies anything because he's played in 43 games and 94 games. But if you go from 17 through 2021, 131 bombs tied for 18, 516 slug, 24th, 159 doubles tied for eighth. And I know that he played in Colorado and all that, but we've seen a bunch of guys 
DJ LeMayhew was good, but he actually had better seasons after he left Colorado. We saw with a guy like Matt Holliday still had outstanding numbers and all that. So it can happen for guys that leave. Nolan Arenado, that's another example. DJ right? guys, Yeah, guys can leave Colorado and, and still be good. So here's the question. Can we get what percentage of 17 through 2021 Trevor Story can we get? Can it can it be over 80%? Can it be 90? Or is it going to be... 50%. Is it going to be lower than 50%? Is it going to be 70%? Like, Because I, I think if you get 75% of what Trevor Story was doing, it's gold glove caliber defense and 25 home runs. Like, Is that too much to ask? Well, and, and I think Story is, he's the one who's going to, I think, have the biggest impact on the scale of the Red Sox win total or how good they're going to be this season because of his two-way ability. Um, and the fact that, as you said, he's, you know, one of the few big right-handed hitters in the lineup. And if they can get, you know, let's say defensive wise, he's, he's not going to have the same arm he did back then, but let's say he's, you know, 95% he was on defense. If they can even get probably what 75, 75, 80% on offense, like that just changes the game for them. You know, if he's producing at 75, 80% of his levels in, uh, in cores, you know, you're talking about, I think the 2021 season is a really good benchmark. And that's kind of the line I'm looking at where he went 251, 329, 471 with 24 home runs and 20 steals. You know, I, I don't know if he's going to be able to get back to those like, you know, 35, 37 home run season. He had an 18 and 19 when he was, you know, MVP final or, you know, top 10, top 12 in the MVP. But I think that 250, you know, 330, 460 range is a pretty realistic outcome. And if he does that with the defense that you're expecting, that's the the way the Red Sox can outperform their expectations is, you know, you have him playing really good defense in center or excuse me, it's shortstop. You sure you sure up you're up the middle defense. Maybe that's why you get Raphael out there more in center field. Like just those two changes alone could save the pitching staff. Imagine how many out. Think about how many outs they would save the pitching staff. If you add oh. you know that type of defender at shortstop and center field. All that stuff can have a carryover effect on both sides of the ball. And that's why I think there is some variance in the outcome. And yeah, I, his story can be, you know, 75, even let's say 80% of his himself, then that's kind of the, the the key that could prompt them to be end up having a season that, you know, kind of unexpected for, or I guess to exceed the current expectations, which I don't think are very high. Yeah. By the way, now that you mention it, like if Raffaello plays every day, mainly every day, and you have Duran and you have story, I don't know how much they'll want story to run just because of all the injuries he's had, yeah. although those are arm injuries, but Man, this, this Red Sox team could steal a lot of bases, which we haven't well, really seen in a long time. Like, Rafaela could swipe a shit ton of bags if he's on base. And Duran, we saw it last year. Like, this guy's unbelievable. Duran's great, too, at turning single. I've never seen anybody turn singles. Into, well, I guess I shouldn't. That, that's slightly hyperbolic. But the way that he turns singles into <laughs> doubles is incredible. Like, yeah. he'll hit a ball that goes in front of the left fielder, and somehow he's thinking about going a second. I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, oh, by the way, I know I said before we let you go, but what do you think of Grissom? I was just, I was... Like the, I was just going to actually bring him up because he's okay. it's because we're kind of talking about the middle infield. I figure, you know, you got to that's the other wild card, because I, I do. I think some of the stuff he brings on offense is stuff they need. You know, he's a contact hitter. And when you're talking about the lineup right now, especially if you're playing like William Abreu, Jaron Duran, you got a lot of K risk with some of those guys. Story, Duran, Abreu. Um, Cause is going to strike out a lot, but I don't really care because he's going to he's impacting the baseball and he's going to put up massive numbers either way. Yeah, but he's probably going to break Barry Bonds record this year. That's my prediction. <laughs> I think you're you're in the 120th percentile outcome for him this year. But um with someone like Grissom, you know, he he's he's a solid contact hitter. I, I doesn't really strike out last year whiff rate. Um, you know, he was like I want to say like 70th percentile, 75th percentile. So it's above average in whiff rate, above average in strikeout rate. It's a nice balance. It brings balance to the lineup. And 
he's a much I feel like his profile, you kind of think he's like 5'10, 5'11. He's like 6'2, 2'10, 215. I would not surprise me at all if he comes into more power as he matures. And you know, whether and obviously the projections I think are more, you know, in the 270, you know, 10 to 15 home run range. But with a guy of his size at Fenway Park, if he can, you know, find that swing to left field. Um, I know looking at his spray charts, it's interesting. Actually, last year, everything was to right field. And that is the one concern I heard from talking to scouts was there's some like bat speed. They weren't cons- they weren't, you know, confident how if it was anything more kind of like fringy to average bat speed versus those guys who really can whip the bat through the zone and get around on fastballs. That is the concern. But if he can show, you know, some some pop to left field here, I think he's someone who's going to fit in really well um, and gives them gives them kind of another dimension that they haven't really had from second base, you know, some stability there and someone who can, you know, prioritize putting the ball in play, move runners along kind of the little things that I feel like we've talked about in the past that that they've been missing out on in past seasons when you get to that bottom of that lineup and it was a bunch of guys who just usually were going to strike out, you know, like last year when it was Kiki Hernandez, Connor Wong, um, you know, Emmanuel Valdez back there that that's. Those are not guys who are really looking to put the ball in play and are going to keep keep the line going, um, keep runners moving and everything. Well, and if this is Alex Cora's last year as the Red Sox manager, he's been asking for a more athletic team for years. He certainly has a more yeah. athletic team this year. And I was talking to Zach Klein, who's a TV reporter in Atlanta. He was saying it's it's not like they didn't like Grissom. It's just like there's nowhere to play him. Because no, they, the team's so yeah, I heard, I heard the same thing. They uh, they just they ran in a situation where they were in their comp, their, they were in their window to win. And, you know. He's not a shortstop. Let's clear that up uh, defensively. And they tried that. It didn't work. They moved on to Orlando Arcia, who I believe was, I want to say he was an all-star last year. Um, yeah, I think he was. But yeah, like the Braves really liked him. It was just, there's they have all their guys under control for infinite years and they're all really good. So there's just nowhere to play him. I mean, he's not going to displace Ozzy Albies at second base for them. So uh, for them, it makes sense. And I, I think it does show some that Chris Sale did have trade value. Like the fact that they were able to get a player like Grissom, um, you know, they had to eat money to do it. That that meant that they were willing. That's the kind of thing I like. You know, I'd rather if you're the one trading the big money guy, eat some money so that you can get a better return. I think that's what they did with Grissom. And I make I'm I'm very interested to see what he can do. Um, yeah, in this lineup, because as you said, they badly need either him or Tyler O'Neill to really step up and kind of perform like their peak expectations. Yeah, and did you see the clause they put in sales new contract there? He's not allowed to ride a bicycle, so he won't be able to do that. For the best, probably. I know. All right. And I know like everyone's like, that's unbelievable he had that type of injury. I mean, this guy literally like broke his rib pitching. Somebody surprised he fell off a bike. Unbelievable. I, I love the guy too. I just I feel bad for him. It's not like he didn't just try. unlucky. Just, no. Yes. His body bad betrayed luck. him. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that is Ann Kundal from SoxProspects.com. Make sure to read all the stuff at SoxProspects.com. There's a great article up right now, how the Red Sox draft strategy has affected the club's pitching development. And thank you so much for the time, man. We're getting closer to the start of the season. Really enjoyed it, and we'll talk as we get closer to the season. Definitely. Thanks for having me on, Brian. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians 
who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Ann Kundal, as always. And make sure you go read that article at SoxProspects.com. It's really good, and it sort of indicates why the Red Sox have not developed many starting pitchers over the past five, six years and change. Okay, joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm okay, Brian. Always a little blue after football season's over. Maybe bluer than normal this year because the Red Sox season's not looking uh, too auspicious, but we'll see. Yeah, I did like seeing all the videos there of guys down in Fort Myers yeah. getting ready for spring training. I'll get it excited. I'll get excited. I just hope the end of the season is not at the beginning of August like it's been the past <laughs> yeah. couple of years. I want this yeah. thing to be relevant. Okay, I did want to mention this one thing, though. So Dan Graziano from ESPN, he wrote that the Patriots also need a quarterback, but there are people around the league who believe they're open to trading the number three selection, moving back in the draft and addressing the quarterback in free agency. He mentions the Vikings and the Falcons as teams that could trade up for that number three pick. Kirk Cousins not under contract with the Vikings, and the Falcons don't really have a quarterback right now. So this is interesting. Joe Murray came on the Sunday pod, and he sort of had this philosophy as, hey, maybe they'll trade the pick. Now, I want the pick. I want to take Jaden Daniels if he's there. We've been abundantly clear about that. But we heard Dan Graziano there mention, or I read his quote, that it was free agency they were looking at. Okay, so let me run these names by you, Jamie. Okay. Kirk Cousins is coming off a torn Achilles. He is not mobile to begin with, but who knows what he's going to look like coming back. I w- he's a good quarterback, right? I mean, passer rating last year was third in the NFL, 103.8. The completion mm. percentage was second at 69.5%. But you would think the Vikings want to bring him back. And then secondarily, Atlanta could be a team that's really interested in him. And Atlanta, to me, is a more interesting destination if I'm Kirk Cousins. His wife's from Georgia, but they have Bijan Robinson, they have Drake London, they have Kyle Pitts. So if you're Kirk Cousins, you come into the AFC East or you're going to Atlanta. I just feel like Cousins, who's the number one quarterback out there as it pertains to free agency, I don't see him coming to the Patriots. you agree on that? I mean, yeah, unless they throw a boatload of money at him. But otherwise, yeah, I think those other destinations are more attractive. Okay, and by the way, like, I, what does Kirk Cousins do for this team? Like, the Patriots aren't, they're going to be better with Kirk Nothing. Cousins, but it's like, okay, then you're looking for another quarterback in two years. Ryan Tannehill stunk last year. He's a free agent. 78.5 passer rating, 35th of 41 qualifiers, barely better than Mac Jones. Tannehill, right. I think, is pretty much cooked at this point. I don't want any, uh, any part of him. Baker feels like he's going back what? to Tampa. Now, Baker had a really good season, and I, I just can't imagine Tampa doesn't bring him back. Like, they just went to the postseason, and they have a really talented team. We'll see what happens with the Mike Evans situation. We were talking about that the other day. But do you want to bring in Baker or draft Jaden Daniels? I still would rather draft Jaden Daniels, right? And I, I think if you're Baker, why would you want to come here, right? Like, he's already made a ton of money in his career, being the first overall pick, but if you're Baker Mayfield, you probably want to go somewhere where you're comfortable, like you're comfortable right now in Tampa. I know Canales left to take the head coaching job in Carolina, but if I'm Baker Mayfield, like right. I'm going back to Tampa where I just sort of rejuvenated my career. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's already hopped around, but this is already his third team, I think, and he has a good rapport with Evans. I, I don't see why he'd want to leave as long as the Buccaneers want him back, and why would they not? They just won their division. Yeah, so then the other guys, like Baker is a good player, and Cousins is really good. I just don't see those as legitimate possibilities right now for this team. And then you look at, okay, Minshew, we saw him play against the <laughs> Patriots. He was horrible. Now, he had some better games down the stretch of the season, but he was 28th in passer rating. Jacoby Brissett is a backup-type quarterback that can start. And then you think about Jameis Winston. I mean, that's a guy that he did have the 30-30 season where he threw the 30 picks. He hasn't started a lot of games since that point in time, right? I mean, he really hasn't been a starter since right. Tom Brady took over in Tampa. He went to New Orleans for a couple of years, and that's why I think he's probably going to end up in Denver with Sean Payton. That's what I think is going to happen for him. I mean, they seem to like Derek Carr in New Orleans. I don't know why he sucks. I would have played Jameis over him at times last year, but... I just don't think the free agency route makes sense for the Patriots. Like, I think it makes a lot more sense for Atlanta because they're sitting there with the eighth overall pick and they have a lot of weapons right now and their defense played pretty well last season. So that's why if I'm Atlanta, it makes sense for me to go after Kirk Cousins with the Patriots. And we saw what Graziano said there is that they could be considering moving up to the third pick is the Atlanta Falcons. So if I'm the Patriots, I'm sitting there at three. I, I don't know how I trade back and go after one of these veterans when it's, in all likelihood, you're not getting Cousins or Baker, the two best free agents. What's the point of doing that? I would just draft a quarterback that you're hoping could be the guy for the next decade. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, Brian, after uh, the Super Bowl, seeing Mahomes win again. And it's not quite the same with Brock Purdy, but it's similar in the sense it's like, what are you, what are you, what are you looking to do with your football team? Because if for me and you or Patriots fans, you want to win the Super Bowl. And I just I don't think the free agency route for quarterbacks gets you a Super Bowl in any circumstance. Like who was the last free agent quarterback that won a Super Bowl? I can I can't remember. Like Brady. sometimes you trade sorry? Yeah, Brady. Fine, Brady. fine, fine. If you can get the best quarterback of all time in free agency, you can do that. But otherwise it's like trading for Matt Stafford, I guess. But it's like he's a great player. It just it doesn't get you over the hump all the way. And then it's like, well, what's the point? Well, yeah, no, it's like unique circumstances yeah. where Brady was in a situation where he was done with the Patriots, and then you also had the situation where Peyton Manning, yeah. before that, when he left the Broncos, or right. excuse me, when he left the Colts for the Broncos, they had the number one pick because he was out that season with a neck injury, and the best prospect basically since Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, was there, so they took yeah. him. It's just, it's very rare one of those guys gets to free agency. <laughs> it's more likely like one of these guys asked for a trade, right? Something along those lines. What we'd find out is Russell Wilson's not the same player anymore, but like Matt Stafford He's wanted a good out. He goes to the Rams. He wins a Super Bowl there because, I mean, the Rams mm -hmm. really well coached with Sean McVay. But the point being is that I think, yeah, like he's a really good quarterback that you had to give up legit assets because remember at the time, it's true. Jared Goff's contract was considered to be an albatross on the organization. Now, credit Goff, he goes to Detroit and rehabs his image. Right. He's been really good. But part of the reason they gave up two first-round picks in that deal, one of them was to get rid of Goff's contract. They said, hey, if we're taking Goff, you got to give us a first-round pick to take the contract in addition to the yeah. first-round pick that you're giving us for Matthew Stafford. So it's just rare one of these. Aaron Rodgers is a free agent, but he's old, right? I mean, he's, he's going to be 40, what, 41 next season. Yeah. So he's old. It's just, it's very rare you see a quarterback in his prime become a free agent. I guess Tom Brady was still kind of in his prime, but I mean, it's very rare we see that. So it's the draft. The draft is the way to do this. And you have an opportunity to get a guy at three. You're probably not going to have this opportunity again. Just make the pick. 
I, I, I basically agree with you, Brian. I kind of vacillate a little bit because, like you've mentioned, we, we do have a lot of holes across the board on the line and receiver, but I agree. The only thing that I'm, like, slightly intrigued about is these guys that, like, maybe haven't reached their full potential. Like, in my opinion, Kirk Cousins, we've seen what he can do. It's pretty good, but that's his ceiling. But people have, like, floated, like, trading for fields with, like, our second-round pick. Or even a guy like Mayfield who, like, I just feel like they, they still have a little – higher ceilings than what we've seen. Those are the only guys that like slightly intrigue me, Fields and Mayfield. But otherwise, I hear I don't you. think Mayfield has much of a higher ceiling Maybe than not. he did last year. I think he's a pretty good quarterback. I don't think he's ever going to be a top seven to eight quarterback in the NFL, right? So he's basically middle of the road. And with Fields, the problem there is, well, you don't have a ton of weapons right now. And then secondarily, you got to make a decision on his contracts. Like, yeah, are you, you going to sign... Yeah, are you going to sign him to a long-term contract? So to me, like, that just, I, I, I mean, I'd rather identify my own guy in the draft than going with Fields, who's been okay in Chicago. He's done some stuff. He's been a better runner than he's been a thrower of the football in Chicago. And I get it. It was a tough situation for him. But I, I, I'd rather not go the recycled quarterback route. I'd rather just get the new guy in the building and go from there. I mean, you look at, like, most of the best teams in the NFL, they've drafted and developed yeah. their own guy right i mean we think about like baltimore had the best record they developed their own guy the bills won the division they developed their own guy yeah. the chiefs they developed their own guy you look at it in the nfc the cowboys suck in the playoffs but they <laughs> developed their own guy yeah. jordan love and the yeah. packers yeah jordan love and the packers you mentioned jalen hurts like this is ordinarily how it works right there's a reason that and with kirk cousins he could be like a finishing piece to a team right where it's Maybe. like Okay, if you just need the quarterback where the team is loaded, all right. But that's not the Patriots. The Patriots, like when Tom went to the Bucs, right? And look, I'm not comparing Brady to Cousins. I mean, come on, I'm not doing that. But I'm just saying, like, if you look at that team, they had a legit number one receiver in Mike Evans. Yep. They had a really good number two receiver in Chris Godwin. Their defense was super talented loaded. with the guys they had, especially with the linebackers. And we're talking about the Levante Davids of the world, right? Vita Vea up front. They had a lot of talent. So it's like, okay, we get Tom Brady. That's like, that's the one thing that's missing. The Patriots aren't that team right now. They aren't the quarterback oh. away from making a run. So what's Cousins going to do? Cousins going to get you what? What are they going to win? Six, seven games, especially considering the division's tough? No, I, I hear you. I, I, that is the biggest problem is they're just, they're not one piece away. But that's that's kind of why I vacillate because, yeah, they need a quarterback, but they need so much more than that. But I, I do hear you that all, all of it is moot, having the other pieces if you don't have a great quarterback. So you might as well go for it when you have a top three pick. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, look, I'm excited. we're early in this process. Yeah, we're early in this process, so the Patriots could just be putting stuff out there and seeing how much yeah. they possibly could get for that pick. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. I just, I refuse to believe that they're going to do anything but take a quarterback at number three. I guess we'll see. We'll have more information, right, with the combine and stuff like that. But I, I, I hear you. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, 
Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777, or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.com. Dot org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts, or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in... This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.